This is True Crime Exposed, and I'm your host, Kayla Waters. Thanks for joining me each week as I dive into a new case. You're helping us expose the monsters that can lurk all around us. Welcome back to part two, everyone. Sorry that this week's episode is coming out a few days late. I got wrapped up in Valentine's Day for my kids and my husband, and the week just got really busy. But here we are diving into part two of Lonene Ray Rogers' missing persons case. If you haven't listened to part one, you need to go back one episode and make sure you listen to that so that you know where we're at here. With that, Are you ready for today's case? Okay, guys, I am solo today, so sorry you are just stuck with me. Our co-host is on vacation for a little while. I know, unfair, but don't worry. I'm sure she will be listening right alongside all of you guys. So we ended part one talking about how Allison's teacher slash guidance counselor had given her her phone number and told her to use it whenever she needed. This was Mrs. Dinsmore, the same guidance counselor that Allison had back in fifth grade that let her stay in her home until the talent show when Allison was taken into state custody and being sent back to her Aunt Laura's home. If you listen to part one, that should ring a bell. So like I said at the end of episode one, Mrs. Dinsmore didn't realize how quickly Allison would need to use her as a resource. That very night that she gave her her phone number, October 14th, 1988, things go badly between Bud and Allison. This night was Mrs. Dinsmore's anniversary, so she goes out to dinner. The same night is also Aaron's birthday, Allison's little brother. So that evening, Bud tells the kids that they're going out to celebrate and they're going to go eat. Bud's girlfriend, Marie, was also coming along. And I mentioned Marie very briefly in part one, but Bud had been on and off with Marie for quite a while. She's like his on and off again girlfriend. So the problem with going out to dinner with Marie and the kids was that Bud had a single cab truck, meaning one front row that sat three people. And instead of squeezing in together, Bud insisted that Allison sits in the back of the cab, regardless of it being a cold fall night in Pennsylvania. Allison said as much. She's like, absolutely not. It's way too cold to sit back here. But she was met with a firm slap to the back of her head, which made her lunge forward. And at the same time, Bud grabs her arm, pulls her into the back of the truck and signs to her to get in and shut her mouth. Allison had to try and huddle in the front corner of the cab to stay warm as they hurled down the highway at 60 miles an hour while the air was about 40 degrees. It felt like they drove forever. During the drive, she cried and pounded on the window, begging to be let into the cab. It was so cold, she didn't feel like she could bear it for another second. 
Now, Bud had driven to the town of Erie, Pennsylvania, but he didn't go to a restaurant. Instead, he pulled into the Erie Police Department. Allison, Aaron, and Marie were all stunned and confused. Bud gets out of the truck without saying a word to anyone, and he walks into the station. Allison is still in the back of the cab. Ten minutes later, Bud returns to the truck, and he's angry. He grabs Allison and tells her to come inside with him. As Allison is pulled into the front of the police station by her coat, an officer is standing there waiting for them. Bud then signed to Allison, Tell him I am finished with you. You are bad, and I don't want you in my house anymore. This is what her dad is saying to her. Imagine like the gut-wrenching feeling you would have. Like, what do you mean? You're just dropping me off here. You're giving me up. So Allison does as she's told. She tells the police officer that her own father does not want her anymore. He's trying to surrender her to the police station. The officer is just as shocked and takes a moment before he can say anything. He tells Allison to sign to her father that you can't drop your children off at the police station. But Bud tells Allison that she needs to tell the officer he refuses to take her home. The officer looks at Allison very empathetically. He asks her if she has anyone that she could call. And the only person she can think of was her aunt, Laura. The officer makes the call, but her aunt also refuses to come to the rescue again. I think this had more to do with Bud than it did with Allison. Laura told the officer that this has happened multiple times with Bud and that this time he needed to figure it out. She couldn't do the back and forth anymore. So at this time, Allison is 14 years old and she could tell it hurt the officer's heart to come back and tell her that her aunt also would not be coming. He pleads with her to think of anyone else she could call, and that's when she remembers the piece of paper in her pocket. She hands it to the officer, telling him that her teacher gave her a number to call if she ever needed help. Allison thought in this moment she was more desperate for help than ever, so this is the perfect time to use it. The officer calls Mrs. Dinsmore, who agrees to come and pick Allison up at her home. The officer then has to ask Allison to ask her father if he's willing to drive her back to their home where the Dinsmores would meet them. Bud agrees. So they leave the police station and Allison gets back into the bed of the truck to endure the cold drive home. 25 minutes later, Allison was face-to-face with Mr. and Mrs. Dinsmore. They were waiting for her. And with that, Allison moves to the Dinsmore's home. Ultimately, they invite her to stay for good. Bill and Judy had two sons of their own, and one of them was the same age as Allison and had known her back in fifth grade. They had been friends at that time, but now Things seemed a bit different. He didn't love having Allison move in. It seems like it was a very tough adjustment for him, and unfortunately, he never really came around to it. At first, the Dinsmores don't have custody, so they do have to go to court and figure out all those logistics, which they do, but she does stay with them for the remainder of her teen years. 
Bill and Judy were Catholic, so they introduced Allison into that world, and she fell in love with it. Religion became a huge part of her life from here on. And it's during Allison's senior year that Judy mentions to her that it might be a good idea to have her mother declared legally dead. The law there in Pennsylvania stated that after seven years of a person being missing, they may be declared dead and the children can receive Social Security benefits. At first, Allison feels uneasy, like it was this betrayal to her mother not to keep wishing and hoping that Lonnie was still alive. But in the end, the benefits would greatly help both Allison and Aaron. So she came to peace with it, feeling like it gave life to Lonnie's name, like Lonnie was giving her children something to help them better their futures. So after graduating high school, Allison attended Edinburgh University, only 15 minutes away from the Dinsmore's home. Between Allison's love for science and drive to serve others, she moved towards a degree in nursing, applying to the School of Nursing at Edinburgh. Ultimately, she decides that nursing just isn't for her, and instead she changes direction towards social work. Ultimately, she'll end up becoming a teacher after finishing her master's degree in special education with an elementary education certification to teach grades kindergarten through eighth grade in the state of Pennsylvania. And she would go on to marry her husband, Hans Duker, and then they had three children, Aiden, Morea, and Emilia. So Allison ended up you know, doing really well for herself. She had so much trauma through childhood. She goes through some more traumatic things in her teen years and her young adult years, but ultimately she ends up with that family, her husband and her three children. And she says in her book that that's the first time she really felt like a part of a full family unit. Like she had been welcomed into the Dinsmore's home and she was always very grateful for that. But like I said, one of their kids didn't love her being there the whole time. She always did feel, you know, like the extra, the foster kid, the one people are helping take care of. And now she gets to experience this life with her husband and her own kids where it's just this unconditional family love. So she ends up growing up, she gets through everything she's gone through, and she's able to come out okay and happy. So that's great. Now, going back through Allison's childhood and her teen years, she didn't focus a lot on her mother's disappearance. She was just trying to survive, and diving into the details of what happened was really painful and scary. But 16 years after Lonnie disappeared, Allison decided to plan a memorial service for her with the help of Judy Dinsmore, her adoptive mom. So many people attended to honor the life of Lonine Ray Rogers. Ray and Maxine, who were Lonnie's parents, came along with multiple other family members and friends, probably a lot of family that Lonnie's kids hadn't had contact with for a very long time. Lonnie's sister, Glennie, unfortunately couldn't make the hours-long drive at this time, and she wasn't able to be at the memorial service. But Allison and Aaron at this memorial service, they wrote letters to their mom, which they read out loud. Allison's letter reads, quote, Dear Mom, 
there are so many things I want to say to you. There are so many things I wish we could have shared. It's hard to put a lifetime into words. When I was just a young child, still in grade school, I can vividly remember Mother's Day. It was a classroom assignment to make a Mother's Day card. Why should I make a Mother's Day card, I used to think. Students were required to do it, so I followed directions. Most of the time, I just threw those cards away. One year, however, I didn't. I took my card home and I buried it in the backyard. That card was for you, Mama. My childhood was one long struggle. It was long and hard, Mom, and oftentimes scary. I longed to be held in your arms, to feel you stroke my hair, and tell me that everything was going to be all right. That was one thing I could never experience, and it was so hard for me to understand. It's easy to blame others and fall into a pit of despair and self-pity. I didn't do that, though. I decided to take the pebbles life was handing me and make them into mountains. I never took anything for granted, and I always strive to be the best person I could. People tell me I'm a lot like you, which really makes me happy. There is no one else on this earth that I'd rather be like. It's hard to form a picture of you in my head since I lost you so young. Everyone in this room has helped me form a picture of you in their own ways, as teachers, parents, relatives, and friends. I've met many wonderful people and had many role models throughout my life. I know you had a big part in all these relationships, and I thank you for watching over me. One day when I am called home to the Lord's great kingdom, I know we will meet again. Until then, I am enjoying the journey I have been on. You have always been the part of me that loves life and yearns to give that love away. I thank you for the love that you have given me, and I pray that I may use my gifts wisely through your love and the love of the Lord. I love you, Mom. Love, Allison Morea. Allison shared these letters in her book that I have referenced and that I will link in our show notes. And she also shares Aaron's letter, her little brother, and his reads, Dear Mom, sometimes I wonder what it would have been like with you in my life. So many questions come to mind, like would I have the same interests, would I have the same personality, and ultimately would I have had a normal life like most kids? There's a feeling of something missing in my everyday life. This was especially true for my baptism, my first day of kindergarten, and when I was ill and needed a mother's loving care. I feel I've been robbed of my childhood because I had to grow up a lot faster than most other kids. For the most part, I had to take care of myself and my own needs. I wish I could go back in time and fix things so I could say all the things I never got to say, like I love you, and live the life I've always dreamed about with my whole family. I know I can't relive the past, though. It's time to move on with my life. The mystery of your disappearance has made it more difficult to deal with, but after 15 years, it is time to accept that you are gone. Miss you so much, Aaron. I wanted to share these letters just to show how devastating it is and 
how these people that are the family members of a victim are secondary victims to the crime. They lose so much. It's so painful. And you think of Allison and Aaron, they had to live their entire lives, most of their childhood, without a mother. And that really affected them. So in this memorial service, it did feel good to them to honor Lonnie's life and pay tribute to their mother. But Allison never really gave the investigation into her mom's disappearance much thought until she receives a Facebook message from a woman named Suzanne Reed. Suzanne was writing a book and wanted to include Lonnie's story. Allison communicated with Suzanne about the book and gave her her Aunt Glennie's information because Glennie was going to be able to give so much more insight into who Lonnie was and what went down when she disappeared since Allison was only five years old when her mother went missing. The book Suzanne was writing was called Anonymous Tip, and it included multiple stories from different missing persons cases. Lonnie's case was the last one added. Suzanne had come across her case, and it turned out she had the same birthday as Lonnie, which made her feel instantly connected. And what Suzanne added into her book was a small little insight into Lonnie's story and Lonnie's case. And Allison thought she did a great job, but it also gave her this desire to write about her mom's case herself and rewrite the story of their lives. This is what led her to write her book that I read on this case, titled A Daughter's Journey and Story of Resilience. Now, Allison had looked into her mother's case once when she was 18. Judy had asked her if she wanted to be taken to the police station to look through her mother's file, and Allison agreed to go. It turns out the case file was two to three inches thick, but although the investigator showed them the file, like, here it is, kind of, like, getting them all excited, he wouldn't open it for them. He told Allison that she wouldn't be allowed to look through this file because this was still an open investigation. He goes on to tell Allison, quote, I'm going to be honest with you. Inside this binder, we have everything we need to, do to convict your father except for a body. Without a body, you cannot prove a crime was committed and everything in this file is considered circumstantial. Which like, okay, I get what he's saying. It is harder to convict without a body, sure. But at this point, like it had been decades since Lonnie went missing. There are plenty of cases that have ended with a conviction without a body. Like after all this time, why not just go for it? Circumstantial evidence can still paint a picture of what happened. You don't necessarily need the body. At this point today, it's been over 40 years. It's been a long time. So why? Why can't they just go for it? I don't get it. Anyway, Allison ends up hearing about this former FBI agent after this meeting, and this guy is named Jim Fisher. She's able to meet with him, and he agrees to look into the case. He gets in touch with the state police and gets what little information he can out of them. Ultimately, Jim tells Allison, quote, 
There is not one single piece of evidence that has led to finding her or convicting him in all these years. I'm sorry that I couldn't be of more help, but at this point, I have nothing to move on. So another huge blow to Allison. It was always disappointment after disappointment for her when it came to her mom's case. At one point, Allison is called by the Pennsylvania State Police Investigator. He was working on Lonnie's case and wanted to inform Allison that a body had been found nearby in Troy, Ohio. The body found was female, late 20s, and had a lot of similarities to Lonnie. This could be it. Allison wanted this to be her mother in a way. It was time to find out what happened once and for all. So she agreed to meet with police. She got to the station. She felt like she was going to throw up and she had come along with her friend Trish. They go into a room and the investigator explains how everything about the body recovered matches Lonnie except the dental records were inconclusive. Following the meeting, Allison left a little disappointed, not receiving much more information about her mom's case. And then just a couple of weeks later, she gets a call from the police department. They want to collect Allison's DNA to add into the national database. At this time, Allison was living in Cleveland, Ohio, so the investigator drives out to her, he collects her DNA, and it's sent off to be added into the database. Now, a few weeks later, it's confirmed that the body does not indicate a familial DNA match, so this was not Lonine Ray Rogers. Allison felt a giant hole in her stomach as this information was relayed. Just months later, Allison receives another call from the investigator handling Lonnie's case at this time, and he explained that Bud's girlfriend, Marie, had come forward and wanted to speak with police. And she also asked the police to reach out to Allison because she wanted to talk to her. This is the girlfriend, ex-girlfriend that Bud had dated on and off for many years. She is the one who was present when Bud drove Allison to the police station at 14 years old and told the officer that he wanted to get rid of his daughter. So Allison explains that the police wanted her to be the one to come in and speak with Marie because they thought Marie would be more open with her. Apparently, the deaf community had has somewhat of a distrust or that deaf community had somewhat of a distrust with the hearing community. And Allison says it's a hard wall to break down. Allison was fluent in sign language since she had basically been an interpreter her entire life, but she wasn't ecstatic about meeting with Marie because she did not have pleasant memories. She remembered how Marie would make her own dinner and sit eating at the table, knowing that the kids were starving and going without food. She would even tell Bud to let the kids know that this was her food and she bought it with her own money so she wouldn't be sharing any of it with them. But... Allison wants to get answers in her mother's case. So reluctantly, she agrees and they meet in a suburb of Erie, Pennsylvania at the state police barracks in Lawrence Park. Marie states that Bud was always abusive to her and that she knew he killed Lonnie. 
However, Marie wouldn't give details. Allison agreed that Bud was an awful human and he did likely hurt Lonnie, but they needed more information, something to push this forward. At this point, kind of everybody thinks Bud hurt or killed Lonnie. So they need Marie to give them something, a little more. But nothing Marie said helped move the case forward. Allison felt defeated yet again. There were too many disappointments too close together, and she needed a little break. She told the police she would need some time, and from here, she didn't hear from them for over 12 years. January 7th, 2021 was the 40th anniversary of Lonnie's disappearance. Since she went missing, no one has used her social security number, she has never received health care, and there have been no sightings of her in all that time. This was the day Allison wanted to release her own book. As she prepared for this, she did want to learn more from the police and see if she could write an ending to her mother's story. So she called the Pennsylvania State Police Meadville Barracks. This was the office in charge of her mother's investigation. Allison requested to talk with whoever was working Lonnie's case. This would be Corporal Josh Walton. He took Allison's call, but his greeting was unwelcoming. He asked Allison what it was that she wanted to know. Allison explains that she hasn't called about her mom's case in over a decade, and she just wants to know what they are doing with the investigation. Walton responds saying, quote, well, your aunt Glennie has had all kinds of ideas for things she expects us to do, but they are not realistic expectations. Allison's a little taken back and she explains in her book that Glennie was very passionate and emotional about Lonnie's case and she would push hard, which is what Glennie should do as the sister of Lonnie. It's frustrating any time the police treat the family members of a victim this way because it's absurd to be annoyed by their perseverance for the one they love. Like have a little empathy or work a different job. Like you can at least show them that you care even if they are bugging you. Don't sh- don't show that to them. Like they're they should be bugged with you be- for being bugged at them. Like they are the one with a family member who is missing, which is beyond what any of us could comprehend if we haven't been through it. So like I said, gain a little empathy. It goes a long way. Anyway, Corporal Walton, he goes on to explain that they will not share any information with Allison because it's still an open investigation. He also says he oversees trooper Nicole Ludwig, who he assigned the case. Allison wants to speak with her instead. Walton takes Allison's information and agrees to pass it along, but days pass with no response from the trooper. So Allison calls again and then waits a couple more days before receiving a call. An in-person meeting was scheduled for April 7, 2021. Allison, her husband, and kids were supposed to go on vacation that following month, so her husband Hans was unable to take the time off work to come along with her. Instead, she asks Suzanne Reed, and this is the lady who wrote the book about who had included Lonnie's case in her book, Anonymous Tips. Allison's friend Rose Tarquino also tags along. 
Rose used to be married to a deaf man named Richard Rohrer, and they were friends with Bud Rogers back in the day, like back when Allison was a young child. Rose actually has children, Allison's age, and Rose had never liked Bud, but she did put up with him for the sake of Allison and Aaron because she could see they needed more support and love. Rose felt like Bud was a man who exuded evil. She could feel it when she was around him. Rose had never believed that Bud's wife had ran off with another man and was just nowhere to be found. It's a small world, I say it all the time, and this goes to show because Rose was also friends with Allison's adoptive mom, Judy Dinsmore. The two of them had golfed together and Allison had remembered her, so she always assumed that Rose knew she was Bud's daughter. Many years after living with the Dinsmores, Judy had passed away, and in the funeral line, Rose came through, and Allison, who was an adult by that time, made a comment on how crazy it is that Rose would be brought back into her life so many years later. Rose was confused, and Allison explained that she is Bud Rogers' daughter. Rose was actually shocked and asks how she never knew that. From here, they stay in touch through Facebook. Rose was always supportive of Allison, especially as Allison went through breast cancer. She had a bilateral mastectomy that had to be repeated because the margins weren't clear, and then she endured 21 rounds of radiation. Just another little look into how strong Allison has been through her life. And a year later, you know, she was able to have that reconstruction surgery and she got through it. She is a freaking rock star. She's been through more than any of us could even fathom. And it was Rose who cheered her on through this, through all of it. So when Allison finally started communicating with the police again, Allison reached out to Rose asking for her to come along. So after that meeting on April 7th, Nicole, Rose, Allison, and Suzanne drove over to the duplex that Lonnie, Bud, Allison, and Aaron had lived in at the time Lonnie disappeared. Allison, Rose, Suzanne, and Lonnie's sister, Glennie, dubbed themselves Lonnie's Angels, each bringing something to the table in the fight for justice. Rose had connections to the people in the community, Suzanne had true crime knowledge and the understanding of digital resources. Glennie was the passionate cheerleader for the group as she was unable to travel into town for most of the meetings due to her health. And Allison is her mother's fighter, a passionate and persistent advocate. Allison learned a few things during this meeting. She already knew that Ray had given his daughter money in preparation to leave Bud. Ray had given her $60. What Allison didn't know was that police found the $60 in Bud's wallet the day of Lonnie's disappearance. He claimed that Lonnie had given it to him to pay a bill. But that didn't line up with what Lonnie's parents knew from talking to her that night. They knew Lonnie wanted to leave Bud. Allison also learned that Bud dropped them off to the babysitter, Sandy, at 3 a.m. and appeared hot, sweaty, and nervous. It also turns out that during the initial searches for Lonnie, a well in the basement of Ray and Maxine's former home was dug up. 
this house was just a few houses down from the duplex that Bud and Lonnie lived in. Apparently, Bud had been to that house many times before Lonnie's parents moved out. The house must not have been occupied at the time of the disappearance for them to consider that Lonnie was possibly dumped here. The only thing found was a button sent off for further analysis and there was no connection found to Lonnie. Allison also found out that just five years before this meeting, around 2017, Bud agreed to talk to police after not cooperating for many decades. However, the police did not follow through on finding a court-approved interpreter, so they were like, eh, screw it, and they never conduct the interview. An absolute failure right there. The man, who is the main suspect, agrees to talk after decades, finally. And you guys don't find a freaking interpreter. You're just like, eh, that's a little too much work. I guess we won't talk to him. Like, this is a blatant disregard for Lonnie's case. Total failure. Not good work. Also... Apparently, all meeting notes from interviews with Bud in those first few days, because he talked to them in the first few days, all those notes were nowhere to be found. They were lost. So, a few frustrating things Allison found out, and she could never believe that her mother willingly ran off in the middle of the night during a blizzard without her purse, keys, or hearing aids. And if she did need to leave right then, her grandparents' house was 100 yards away. She would have gone there. She did not run off. After the meeting, Allison wondered what more she could do for her mother. She remembered a Facebook post that she had made back in 2020 and how much support and love she received on this post. So... That made her think social media was a good next step to generate support for Lonnie's justice. And this is when she started the Justice for Lonine Facebook page. The members of this group are also called Lonnie's Angels. You can find this page now on Facebook, and I encourage you to go support Allison's journey for justice. The post she originally shared back in 2020 reads... Forty years ago, on this night, a young mother of two had an argument with her husband. She planned to leave him due to his long list of criminal behaviors and failed promises to change. She needed to protect her heart and her children. She was someone's child. She was someone's sister, someone's friend, someone's co-worker. And she was my mother. On January 7, 1981, Lonine Ray Rogers vanished off the face of the earth and has never been heard from or seen again. It is rare that I talk about this because for so many years, I was afraid of my father and afraid that people would judge me for being part of a story of violent crime. I have spent the last 40 years living a private testament to the resilient spirit of this amazing woman. She was robbed of the opportunity to raise her children and share her light with the world. 
Today, I break my silence, and I proudly share that your life was not in vain. Lonine Ray Raffle. I have lived my life trying to be compassionate, loving, and kind to all that I meet. I refuse to let the horror that I lived as a child define my future. I chose to rewrite this story for good. I am a reflection of all that you were to so many in your short life. Your sparkle, your resilience, your fight for equality for those that were hearing impaired like yourself were a model for the person I wanted to become and still aspire to be. I promise you that I will live my life spreading positivity and love. I will work to inspire, not tear down. I will make you proud and people will know your name. On this anniversary of the 40 years this world has been without you, I announce to the world that I am in the process of writing a book about your life as well as mine. Your name, your story, and your inspiration will outlive us all in the words of this book. My goal is to have this book finished by next year at this time. Your story will touch the lives of others, and your resilient spirit will give courage to people for years to come. On this day, we remember and honor Lonine Ray Raffle. Once Allison was back in touch with the police, her and Glennie would reach out over the months, but they rarely got a call back. Full months would pass before they would hear from them, and it was clear Lonnie's case was not a priority. Rose would comment on posts in the Erie Silent Club Facebook, looking for those who had information about Bud. She received messages from members who had a lot to say about Bud's character. One man who went to school with Bud at the School for the Deaf in Pittsburgh shared that Bud was always looking for attention, the jokester. So this man thought Bud was funny, and they started hanging out until Bud crossed the line with his jokes a few too many times. Ultimately, this man cuts ties with Bud when Bud tells this man he has something to show him. Bud brings him back to an area where he had laid a few kittens on the ground. Trigger warning, these kittens all had their heads severed from their bodies. Bud thought this would be funny to his friend, but this man was sick about it as Bud bragged about what he had done before throwing the kittens into a sewer drain. After this, the man refuses to be friends with Bud. He's like, no thanks, dude. Like, you're weird. He knew there was pure evil inside of Bud Rogers. Another woman messaged who was married to a man that used to be friends with Bud. She said Bud was always in trouble. This man had stopped being friends with Bud after one night when they were at a local bar by Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania. A lot of college students attended this bar. When one of the girls Bud was flirting with decided to leave the bar, Bud tells his friend to follow him out. Bud follows the girl back to her apartment, but she didn't know that they were trailing behind her. Bud breaks into the girl's apartment and holds a knife to her throat while he rapes her. This friend of his witnessed all of this happen. Apparently, the man wasn't involved in the assault, 
but he did stand by without doing anything to help or stop the assault, which is horrible. I don't know if he was scared because Bud had a knife. I don't know if he knew the intention of Bud. Like, they definitely shouldn't have been following this girl home. That's where he should have been like, yeah, this is weird. But this is just not a great look for the friend either. I can only hope he was also scared and that's why he froze. This had to be absolutely horrific for the young woman. She was screaming for help and someone must have heard. So they called the police. The police come and they catch Bud in the act of the rape. Both Bud and his friend were arrested and they served time in prison for their role in the crime. Bud served more time than his friend, but Bud was only sentenced to six months in jail and then released on probation for one year. So for a rape at knife point, he only has a total of 1.5 years punishment. One of those years, the whole year being probation. Our justice system is broken. Definitely. So following this message that Rose had received on Facebook, Glennie calls the Erie County Clerk of Courts and requested records to confirm this story. Like, is this legit what this woman is saying? A week later, the paperwork comes in and it was true. This crime had taken place in 1969, likely before Bud ever met Lonnie. And Allison believes he probably never told her about this arrest either. So Bud is not a good dude. He was a bad dude before he even met Lonnie. Why in the world would they not use this information and history along with the circumstantial evidence and just give it a go? I'm no police. I'm no prosecutor. So obviously I don't fully understand it all. But I'm just saying after all this time, Bud has a history. The circumstantial evidence points to him. Why not just try it? after decades and decades. Anyway, remember Rose ha- was married to a deaf man. This is her ex-husband. He ha- used to be friends with Bud. Well, she reaches out to her ex-husband and asks him if he knew anything about Lonnie's case. Richard signed that Bud was a bad man and definitely killed Lonnie. Richard said that Bud's ex-girlfriend Marie once told him how afraid of Bud she was. She told Richard she was afraid of Bud because he had taken her to where he buried Lonnie's body. Bud threatened Marie that if she ever told anyone about this, he would kill her too. Marie told Richard that Lonnie is buried on Church Road in LaBeouf Township. Richard believed this because he had seen Bud pulled over often on Church Road after Lonnie's disappearance. Richard even stopped once after Marie told him this information and he asks Bud what he's doing. Bud tells Richard it's none of his business and he doesn't need to worry about him. The info was passed along to Trooper Ludwig, who did meet with Rose and Richard to take down the claims. I guess Church Road is a dirt road and was not heavily populated. There was a gravel pit on the road and a lot of forested area. 
Richard told the investigator that Marie specifically told him the location was down down a little ways on Church Road on the left near white pipes that were sticking out of the ground. Trooper Ludwig explained to Allison that she didn't really think the story was reliable. Allison asked if they could just use cadaver dogs to rule out the location. And while Trooper Trooper Ludwig agreed, she also explained that it would take a lot of time to get to that point since she was working on other cases as well. Around this same time, Rose also got a call from the Mill Village fire chief who said that his friend had reported to him that he spent a lot of time with friends in the woods off of Church Road. They had always been suspicious of an area of depressed ground that they used to joke was a burial ground. Once the chief heard this, he thought it would be a good idea to investigate this area. So multiple people are pointing towards this area off Church Road as a suspicious area. Rose reported the information to Trooper Ludwig, but she again explained that the cadaver dogs would take time. Allison was frustrated because time was against them at this point, 40 years after Lonnie had gone missing. People in this case were aging. Allison had asked Trooper Ludwig to interview Marie again after all of this information came out. Like, remember, Allison had met with her a bit ago. And then this information comes out and she's like, will you interview Marie again? But before that can happen, just three days after Allison's request, Marie dies. Allison decided that they could not keep waiting for things to happen. It was time to take action right now. Rose called the fire chief back and asked if he could meet them off Church Road and show them this general area that was suspicious. And he agreed. Allison asked her friend Ashley, an angelic medium, to come with her. A medium is someone who uses their psychic or intuitive abilities by tuning into the spirit world. So Allison and Ashley, they meet Rose and the fire chief in the parking lot, and then they follow his truck. And in the middle of a conversation, Ashley stops Allison and says, quote, it's here. How do we tell the truck to stop? She's telling me she's here. It was shocking to Allison because as Ashley muttered the words, the fire chief's truck comes to a stop. This spot is where he was taking them. The road was not populated or well-traveled on. It felt dark even in the middle of the day. There was a depressed area that the group came across, and they were drawn to it. Allison begins raking the area and starts using her shovel. Just as she starts digging into the ground, she finds a bone. It's a large bone, and it looks like it could be human. Allison texts Trooper Nicole Ludwig immediately that they have found bones at the location that numerous people have pointed to. Trooper Ludwig was out of town and tells Allison to stop digging and call the state police forensic team. 45 minutes later, the forensic van arrives at the scene. Pictures were taken and sent to forensic scientist Dr. Dennis Dirkmatt. And he reviews the pictures. About 15 to 20 minutes later, he lets the 
uh, forensic team know that the bones were that of a white-tailed deer. Allison's heart sinks. It's another disappointment. And the police continue to also disappoint Allison as they brush off her push for Lonnie's justice, usually dismissing her concerns and hopes for the case. After some unfortunate communication between Trooper Nicole Ludwig and Allison, she decided to file a complaint with the Pennsylvania State Police. The complaint doesn't really get them anywhere with the case, but there is a meeting scheduled with Allison and her husband in response to the complaint. And during this meeting, Corporal Walton was very dismissive and rude about Allison's wants for her mom's case and concerns with how they were handling it. Remember, Corporal Walton was one of the first people Allison spoke with after that 12-year hiatus on her mom's case, and he was a total jerk then too. So this meeting was held with Corporal Walton, Trooper Ludwig, and Trooper Gilberto. The meeting started off with Corporal Walton saying, quote, well, you called this meeting. What do you want? Allison was taken back because no, she received a call from Lieutenant Weindorf with the state police who arranged the meeting in response to her complaint. He had told Allison this meeting was an opportunity for fact sharing so that she could understand where they were going with this case and what they have already done. Corporal Walton laughs before saying, not going to happen. We don't share information with civilians regarding criminal cases. And with that, Allison burned hot red. Not only was this man an asshole, but he was completely depersonalizing her connection to her mother's case. Allison's response was, quote, you are rude, inconsiderate, lack compassion, and you rub me wrong. The others tried to calm down the situation. They only shared information with Allison that was already known and could be found through an online search. Allison expressed her want for cadaver dogs out to the area off of Church Road, but Corporal Walton explained that the CIA team said there was not enough evidence to warrant a search involving cadaver dogs and that they needed an exact location. After the meeting, Allison emails Lieutenant Weindorf, the man who set up the meeting. She lets him know how it didn't go how she would have liked, but he responds that his officers spent two hours with her and she was treated fairly. This confirmed to Allison that she could not count on the police to find her mother or convict her father. Eight days after the meeting, Trooper Nicole Ludwig emailed Allison to let her know she was taking a position in a different barracks and the case would be reassigned. Even though this case had just been assigned to Trooper Ludwig six months earlier. Before that, investigator Josh Palowski was working the case, and Glennie had actually really liked him and felt that he cared about the case. Now, because of the reassignment, the state police missed the opportunity to put out a press release on the 40th anniversary of Lonnie's disappearance. So Allison reached out to the media herself. Allison found a news anchor she knew growing up. They had gone to the same church, and she was working with the NBC affiliate in Erie, Pennsylvania, WICU. She was a news anchor who had worked there since 2001. 
So Allison reaches out to her via Facebook, and Amanda agrees to pass the information along. She wouldn't be covering the story, but their investigative reporter, Kara Coleman, would. Carol wanted to meet at the police station and film it all together, but Allison wasn't comfortable being there with the police at the same time. The police would actually end up no-showing their scheduled film date anyway, which was set for the day after Allison filmed with Kara. Kara had driven 45 minutes to the station with her film crew, but was informed that trooper Nicole Ludwig was actually not there. The claim was that Trooper Ludwig left a message on Kara's voicemail the day before canceling the interview, but Kara never received that message. Allison had heard this line many times, the I left you a message or I sent you an email, yet there was never a message or email to be found. The interview was scheduled for July 23rd, 2021, and the story would air Friday, July 30th. This did bring a lot of positive attention to Lonnie's case. So after interviewing with Kara, Allison had connected with a reporter she knew in the Cleveland area where she was living, and she didn't connect with her first about the case. She just wanted this woman to come and speak with her fifth and sixth grade students who were a part of the school news team. This woman was named Danielle. Allison had never thought of covering her mom's case in Cleveland because it was an entire different state. However, the more she thought about it, she decided to share her story with Danielle, who worked for WKYC Channel 3, another NBC affiliate. She passed the story to their investigative reporter, Rachel Polonsky. Days later, Rachel showed at Allison's home to film an interview. The police did not agree to talk during this one. They said they had no comments because it's an active investigation. So the story went on without them, airing on Friday, August 21st, 2021, titled Someone Knows What Happened to Lonine Lonnie Rogers. Just before this story aired, Rose found out who owned the property off of Church Road that was suspect. Once Allison got the number of the property owners, she called and shared details with them about her mother's case. The man and his wife had watched the news coverage by Kara Coleman. The wife explained that her husband bought that property without her permission, and he had wanted to build a house on it. But after the wife visited, she refused to live there, saying that the place is dark and creepy. She felt that the property had a bad vibe. Her daughter also visited this property and felt that same feeling. So the property owners agreed to let Allison bring cadaver dogs to their land and search. Their only request was that she didn't cut any down any of the trees. So it only took Allison two days to put together a team of people who would search the location on August 5th, 2021. A woman named Emily from Facebook had a metal detector and offered to come help search, and Allison had connected with a canine handler herself. In fact, she was able to secure two different canine handlers. The first dog was named Rush. He was a Belgian Malinois. I'm probably butchering that. Um, But he's a very smart dog who was well-trained, 
And it took him 10 to 15 minutes to alert to a specific spot on this property. Rush then searched a second time, starting from a different area in the woods, and he again alerts to the same spot. Now it was the other dog's turn. This dog was named Ranger. He is a border collie, and he ends up alerting to the exact same spot that Rush did without being prompted. The first handler then probes this area of ground, creating four to six holes, and has Rush repeat the search again. He alerts to the same spot, but much quicker this time. A second search was done on August 15, 2021, with the same result. The dog Rush alerts to the same spot yet again. So at one point, Allison speaks with private investigator Chris Gill, a former detective with the Lucas County Sheriff's Office in Toledo, Ohio. He had great advice and explained that once an area is deemed a crime scene, it should not be touched. He persuaded her that it was time to share her information about the cadaver dogs with police. With that, Allison calls Lieutenant Weindorf. She gave him all the information and explained she was not willing to wait more than one week for action on their part. If she didn't hear back from them in one week, she would go to the location herself, start digging, and invite the media to tag along. Through a GoFundMe page, Allison was able to purchase trail cameras that would be placed at this location. And on August 18th, the cameras spot some men in the area. The lieutenant explained that a scene assessment has been scheduled with an excavation team. On August 23, 2021, Allison receives a phone call. A forensic team had been called in, including Dr. Dirkmat, the doctor who originally looked into the first bone found and found that it was a white-tailed deer. So, they brought in ground-penetrating radar that they used to search the area, but unfortunately, nothing was found. The police said that no one seemed to be buried in that location. Allison's body was filled with more devastating disappointment yet again. In the meantime, Allison was able to schedule a presentation at the Erie Silent Club that both Bud and Lonnie had attended. This was their community. The executive board agreed, but then one week before she was set to come, Allison receives a message on Facebook from a man in the club who tells her it actually wouldn't be a great idea for her to come. He said it would be best for her to rent some other place out off grounds from the deaf club because then the people in the club could decide if they wanted to attend. He said that her attendance was worrying the members of the club, that Bud would be upset and no one wanted to piss him off. And Allison asks, quote, what about my mother? She was a member of this club and the club is where she met Bud. Does her life matter? This man replies to her that Bud wasn't actually an active member of the club anymore and he hadn't attended in a few years which didn't make things better for Allison. She was even more upset that they would all cater to him. So Allison's so mad about this that she posts to her social media page about her disappointment with the Erie Silent Club and how she was scheduled to come before being told, like, never mind. 
And very shortly after she made her post, a board member with the club reaches out to her, and it turns out she was not disinvited. The board still welcomed her, and they had no idea that this private member of the club had messaged her, asking her not to come, because the board never canceled her visit. So soon after this, the man who messaged her originally starts trying to video chat with her through Facebook. He probably, the board probably reached out to him and was like, what the hell, dude? Why did you tell her she couldn't come? So he ends up telling Allison that it wasn't him who didn't want her to come to the club. It was his friend who had asked him to send that message to her. His friend who requested this, Allison calls her him Peter. Allison calls the man Peter in her book, which is a pseudonym to protect his identity. So Peter, he was someone who was friends with Bud when Allison was a child. So this is the person who convinced this other man, a member of the club, to message Allison and tell her not to come. Allison remembered visiting Peter's home. They had also, in her adult life, talked through Facebook before this. Allison had reached out to Peter on Facebook and explained to him that her life with Bud was not great and she gave him information about Bud and she pressed him for information that he might have as he had been friends with Bud. And Peter told her that he was no longer friends with Bud, but not to tell anyone that they talked. Allison asked why and asked if Peter was afraid of Bud, and Peter replies, yes. After this conversation, Peter blocks Allison on Facebook. So this is the same man who's now pressuring members of the club to disinvite Allison to present her mother's case. It was just fishy. It was strange. Apparently, Bud and Peter had been friends for decades after attending the Pittsburgh School for the Deaf together, and Bud had also rented a home from Peter for many years. But this didn't stop Allison. She came and she presented her mother's case to the Erie Silent Club on September 11, 2021. Her friend, Paul Busser, attended the meeting with her, and Rose also came. The members responded well to her message, and Allison handed out little cards where members could write anything they knew about Lonnie or Bud onto the paper and turn it in. Even just stories of her mother, Allison wanted and appreciated. And when talking about her mother during this speech, Allison said, quote, Lonnie grew up never accepting or saying the words, I can't. She worked hard for everything in life, and more often than not, she was successful. I love that she never gave up. In fact, if it was something she could not accomplish, she just found another way. She is my hero. Allison went on to say that her mom was just 28 years old with two small children when her life was taken. She tells them that they all know in their gut who is responsible and she needs the community to help find justice for Lonnie. After this, a man named Justin Dombrowski asked Allison for an interview so that he could write an article on Lonnie's case. 
Allison says that this is the best article ever written on her mom's case, and it's titled, Where is Lonine? He ends the article by suggesting that anyone who wanted to leave an anonymous tip could do so through the Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers at 1-800-4PA-TIPS. That's 1-800-4PA-TIPS. So if you're listening to this and you know anything about Lonnie's case and you want to leave an anonymous tip, do so through the Pennsylvania Crime Stoppers. Now, after this article, Allison also goes on to go on multiple podcasts. She continues advocating through the media and on Facebook, and she is still doing so today. The most frustrating thing is that the police still won't share information with with Allison because it's an active investigation. After this many years, she feels like some info should be shared. She can't connect the dots on facts that the police might not realize go together. In an email to Lieutenant Weindorf, Allison tells him that the effort needs to go both ways, between the police and Allison. She asks if they want to solve a 40-year-old case or not, because it might be time to try something different. Maybe it's time to share more information. By late September 2021, a new investigator was assigned to the case, Philip Schaefer. His first email to Allison explains that the work on her mother's case will unfortunately be pushed back due to a recent homicide that had occurred, and this is what he needed to work on now. That's great. Like, you go out there and you work on the murders that are happening now. I don't think that this is necessarily Philip Schaefer's fault or like reason that he can't focus on cold cases. It's more of like a department, an agency thing. Like they need more funding. They need to be able to assign people to cold cases because like, yeah, work on the current cases, but also what about the cold cases? They are always pushed to the back burner. There should be resources to make them top priority instead of always adding them on as an extra for when an officer gets the time. Finally, Allison writes to the county's district attorney on October 6, 2021 to ask for help. She explains her mother's crime, her dad's history, and how she grew up very scared of Bud. Allison tells him she is willing to interview her dad herself if she has to, even though he terrifies her. She ends the email saying, quote, Bud actually agreed five years ago to talk to them, but they never got the interpreter lined up and dropped the ball. There can't be any more dropped balls. The time is now, and I beg you to encourage the police to be active and diligent with each and every lead. Sincerely, Lonnie's daughter, Allison Duker. The following day, she called the district attorney's office. He agreed to take her call. Ironically, Allison had found a list of people working the campaign for him, and apparently the campaign manager was a man named Steve Knightler. Keitler? I'm sure I'm butchering this again. But he was second cousins to Allison through her adoptive family, the Dinsmores. District Attorney Schultz was kind to Allison. 
He heard her concerns and let her know that Peter, the man who didn't want her going to the eerie silent club, had been contacted for an interview by police. But Peter's attorney sent a letter saying that he does not want to be contacted by police anymore. One of Allison's friends from high school reaches out to her and asks if she would be interested in some help from her ex-husband. This was a man named Carrick Caldwell. He was the chief of police for Parker City in Armstrong County in Pennsylvania at the time. And together, they put a team together to continue searching the area where the cadaver dogs had hit before. Even though the police had ruled this area out, Allison just wasn't ready to give up on it. The volunteers consisted of Chet Hart, a bounty hunter, Gordon Lame, an avid metal detector, Jared Dieter, a canine officer, Paul Busser, Allison's family friend, Phil Swinar, Carrick Caldwell, and Allison. So they start searching. Hours and hours pass. While they're searching the land, they don't really turn up anything related to the case until after about four hours. There had been a few bullet casings, but this was an area where people hunted, so it's not a likely connection. But one of the men did find an odd white-colored object that looked like it could be a bone. Allison calls the police, telling them she didn't want to cry wolf since she had been there before and she had found a bone and it turned out to be animal, but she wanted to bring in the item and see if they could take a closer look. So they go to the station, but then the police request that they drive an officer back to the location so he could mark the spot where this item was found. Dr. Dirk Matt ultimately determines that the bone found was not human. So, after Allison's brother-in-law, Neil Duker, receives his law degree in Ohio, he agrees to file a petition for access to the case file, although he knew they would likely not approve the request, which they did not. Neil and Allison appealed the decision, but the appeal was also denied. The cadaver dog, Rush, has been taken back to the location multiple times, always starting from a new point and always alerting to the same location. Allison has gone back with friends to search this area around the base of the tree where Rush always alerts. She's drawn to this area. She just can't rule it out until she knows for a fact that Lonnie isn't around there. Unfortunately, today in 2024, Lonnie is still missing. Police will still not share information with Allison. A new investigator was put on the case back when Allison's book was published, and this was Detective Kevin Giebel. He promised to never give up, and searches continue. Allison wrote, quote, I was able to come to the conclusion that I did, in fact, find my mother all on my own. I did not need a detective, caseworker, therapist, or even my father. I found her within me. She rests peacefully within my heart, my mind, and my actions. She fills every precious moment, every victory, and every accomplishment with me. 
As long as I am alive, my mother is alive through me. I am her reflection and her legacy. Her body is missing. However, I feel her spirit deep inside my soul, and she is mighty. Thanks for listening. Please find us on social media on TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast and on Instagram at True Crime X Pod. That's True Crime E X P O D. What I want to encourage all of you to do is to go to the Justice for Lonine Facebook page. I want you to support Allison and her fight for justice for her mother. And the more help she gets, the closer she can come to answers or pushing the police to give her more information or do more or go for it. And, you know, try to make an arrest and have a conviction in this case. So, again, that's on Facebook at Justice for Lonine.